so I want to just start off saying this. If you are hearing about Christianity, if you are hearing the news of Christianity, and it doesn't sound like the greatest news that you have ever heard, you have misunderstood it. Today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the five, we're going to look at five badges of the gospel. Okay, so what do I mean by that? What do I mean by gospel? What do I mean by badges? Well, by gospel, I mean good news. The gospel is literally translated. The gospel does not mean it's a type of music. The gospel is literally translated as joyful news, great news, news of epic proportion that changes everything, news that makes you want to sing a new song, to dance a new dance. That is what the gospel means, good news. And by badges, I mean these are the traits of the gospel. These are the characteristics of the gospel. And today... The, and the question is, are you wearing these badges? And today, so, so if you are wondering, if you're a Christian, today's going to help you know. If, you are, if there are people in your life that you want them to understand clearly what Christianity is, today is going to help you clearly explain it to them. If you're wondering if you're a Christian, today's going to help you know if you want to take the jump in fully with Christ. If you, if you are a Christian, and if you let what is said today dig and break into your heart deeper and deeper, what you're going to find yourself is coming alive more today than you had been yesterday. And if you've never come to Christ, you're going to find yourself coming alive like you never thought that you could. All right, so we're in the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John. We're coming up on a year and a half now in the Gospel of John, and in, in our series now, we're in the death of death. That's where we're in. And so here's what's been happening. Jesus has been arrested. Here's where we're at. Jesus has been arrested. He's been tortured. He's been mocked. He's been taken by Pilate. He's been taken by the religious elite to, to just be crushed. And now we're going to take it from there. So we're in John 19, verses 16 through 24. Here's what it says. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which, is in, Ara which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. So the soldiers had crucified Jesus. They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots, like this is rock, paper, scissors. Let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. All right, so here's the badges of the gospel. Here's where we're going today. The first badge, the first badge of good news is the gospel is historical. The second is that the gospel is genius. 
Third, that the gospel is a fulfillment, like it's an arrival, like you've been waiting for this promise to happen and it's here. Fourth, is that the gospel is for everyone. And fifth, that the gospel is public. It's radically public. Okay, so the first badge is that the gospel is historical. So what I want you to do, you can picture like a badge on someone's shoulder. And this badge, this first badge, is a picture of a newspaper on this badge that reads, God has come and he has died to rescue us and his kingdom is now here. It is news of a historical event, something that has already happened. It's in the past. It's done. Now, some of you might say, many people say, that the story of Jesus is meant for us to be interpreted figuratively, not literally. And what John is trying to do here is he's trying to convince us otherwise. He's trying to convince us that Jesus dying and rising from the grave is actually a historical event that literally happened. And John's gospel, John, if, if there's a writer of, of the gospels that's going to be called poetic, that's going to be called figurative, it's John. John is absolutely eloquent with his word choices. He's speaking in very poetic ways, yet watch what he does. Very intentionally, John switches his writing style when he gets into chapter 18, and especially here in chapter 19. He gets very vanilla. He gets very boring. He gets very bland. And here's what, instead of using this grand language, here's what he says when God comes into the world, he's crucified. Here's what he says about it. And they crucified him. There they crucified him. Very plain very vanilla. What is going on here? Here's what he's doing. He's making sure that we do not mistake thinking that Jesus died and rose from the grave is a figurative thing. He's making sure that we know that this is a historical event that actually happened, that God himself came into the world, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave. And here's what that means. I mean, guys, if, if Christianity is just figurative, it is boring. Here's what it means, that Jesus died and actually rose from the grave. It means that the gospel is now news, not advice. Advice is about counsel, of how to handle something in the future, something that hasn't happened yet. But news is about something that's already been accomplished, that's already done. So if a king, back in the day, if a king defeats this army of these evil enemies, what does he do? He sends messengers back to the people to say the battle has been won, the war, we fought it, and we have won. He sends the heralders, he sends messengers, he sends good newsers to tell them what has happened. I want to tell you this. Every other religion sends military advisors that are offering advice for us of how to come up against the problem of sin and death, how to come up against a broken world, how to come up against death. Here's some advisors about what to do about your future. But Christianity does not do that. Christianity sends messengers. Christianity sends heralds. Christianity says there is news about something that's already been accomplished. It's done. It isn't about doing. It is about done. Jesus stood against the Goliath of sin and death, and he won. It's finished, done. 
nothing left for us to do to just say he has done it. That is news, not advice. Now, I got to tell you, a lot of people will argue that the gospel stories, these are more legends. They'll say these are more myths of things that have happened, but they're not really real. I want to I introduce you to a guy named C.S. Lewis. Um, he is a literary historian. He's, he's an, an atheist turned Christian, and, I, and he's probably, he holds tons of authority on this subject because literally he studied literary history. So here's what he says about the Gospels. As a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at the time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Listen, if the gospel isn't historical, I quit. I say, let's just go home. If the gospel is not historical, then there is no life after death because figuratively, Jesus rose from the grave. So what does that mean? Figuratively, one day there'll be an eternal life. Figuratively, that doesn't make any sense. This is saying literally Jesus rose from the grave so that we could live on literally forever. Our series is called The Death of Death, where Jesus comes to bury death into its grave. That is only true if the gospel is historical. One of the highest values for Christianity is truth. If it's claiming something that, saying this happened, but it didn't happen, then it's violating its own values. Christianity is a picture of celebration because the war has been won. And one of the greatest problems that Christians have is they do not know how to celebrate because they don't really believe it's true. If you're a Christian, we fall back over and over and over again into not believing this is true. Our life ought to be a life of celebration. Yes, we're going to walk through difficulties. Yes, we're going to walk through suffering. But in the midst of it, there is a celebration about what is to come and about what has been accomplished. So that means now we're just simply patiently waiting for God to finish what he started, to put the finishing touches on the gospel to make all things right. So that's the first badge of the gospel. The second badge is that the gospel is genius. So if you do a Google search for genius, and you do an image search, you're going to see a picture of Albert Einstein. You might see a picture of a light bulb. And that's what a picture of genius is. But I would argue that really it's a picture of a... Let's just say you get the picture of Albert Einstein, only Albert Einstein's telling a story. And he's telling the most genius story ever written, except it falls way short of the gospel. The, the gospel is genius storytelling filled with irony. I want to show you this. It's amazing what's happening. You know, the first time that the gospel is ever preached, do you know who preaches it? God. Do you know who he preaches it to? Satan. He preaches it to the serpent. Here's what happens. So everything falls apart. Sin enters into the world, and God tracks down this serpent, this evil thing, and he says, I will put enmity, 
meaning hatred, between you and the woman's offspring. Talking about Eve, basically saying, there's going to be a man to come one day, and he's going to crush your head. That's what he says. I'll put enmity between you and the woman's offspring, and he's going to crush your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. Now, the rest of the Bible is God's people's search for this great serpent crusher. Now watch this. The first time that the gospel, this is just the genius of God, the irony of how the gospel is being preached. The first time that the gospel is seen, written, is being proclaimed for all to see after Jesus has died. Do you know who, who in a sense wrote it and is in a sense speaking it? It's Pilate, who is this you could easily argue this minion of Satan, this minion of evil, it's Pilate. And here's how he does it. Above Jesus' head, he writes, the king of the Jews. Now, the king of the Jews is the one who the Jewish people are waiting for to come and be the serpent crusher. What Pilate has just said is he's, he is this evil spawn of Satan, and he's saying, this is the one who's coming to crush Satan. This is coming, the one who's coming to crush evil. I mean, there is just genius that is being poured out here in the way that God is using evil to proclaim the truth of his love. It is beautiful what's happening here. The one, you know, there's, there's a place in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, and Jesus is praying in the garden, and this snake slithers up, and then Jesus takes his foot and stomps on the head of the snake. And that doesn't actually happen in Scripture, but it's genius what he's saying, because what's happening there is saying, he's here. The one the whole Old Testament has been pointing to over and over and over again, he's here and he's Christ. Artful storytelling in the gospel is that God is using this irony, saying, my son's going to come to crush evil. And he even causes the most evil man potentially to have been living at the time, Pilate, to proclaim this truth. It is beautiful what's happening here. And I got to tell you, the world, everybody loves storytelling. Like we're, we watch movies, we listen to stories, we read stories, we're singing of stories. And I want you to know what that is. That is us desperately searching through for something that we can hope in. That's why we love stories. We're looking for something to hope in. We're looking for something that is worth putting our faith in. We're searching for meaning. We're searching for love. Really, I got to tell you, what we're searching for is this story of Jesus. Deep in our being, we long for the story to be true, and every story is but a shadow of this greater story. And I'm going to say this too. We will never see the genius of God in the way he tells this story until we put ourselves under the tutelage of the Bible. I like that, just saying that word tutelage. Um, it means just under the teaching of, but it's just, it just kind of is a fun word to say. Uh, so maybe I'll weave it in there later. We'll see. But I, I want to say this. I didn't start reading the Bible until I was in college like really reading it. And what happened is I got this curiosity, I got this thirst, I got this hunger to see this genius plan of how God is going to rescue the world. And I then I, more and more, I could not put the Bible down. I just wanted to dig into it more and more. And you have got to allow 
God to give you a hunger and a thirst for his word. Otherwise, you're going to miss the beauty of this great storytelling. And this is what that means. There's hidden gems in the Bible. But if you don't think there are hidden gems in the Bible, you're never going to find them until you actually think that they're there. And when you think that they're there, then you're going to start looking for them, and then you're going to find them. But you have to let the Bible be what it's supposed to be to you. You've got to let it be God's word to you, because if you don't, you're never going to see the relevance of it. It's not going to make any sense for you. And you're never going to find the good news. The gospel is a genius story of God that's, th- that's laid out in the Bible. And also, God will even use evil to proclaim this great story. That's what he does with Pilate. So that's the second badge. The third badge of the gospel is fulfillment. This is like an arrival. This is, I've been promised something's going to happen, and it's finally here. Like the plane finally landing, the, the, um, the ship finally arriving, or that knock on the door of that person that you've been waiting for to get there. This is a promise, and then an arrival of that promise. So we saw here, it's talking about Jesus' clothing. It's like this weird place, like why is this in here talking about Jesus' clothing? Because it's a fulfillment. It's a promise of something that was in the Old Testament saying this is going to happen in the New Testament. And here's what it says about it. It says that these things happened to fulfill Scripture. And what I want you to see here is that the Bible is filled with stories that are shadows pointing all the way up to Christ. You start with Genesis, you read all the way through, every single story, every single word is somehow, some way pointing us to Christ. Even when the Bible's like, ah, my, God's like, my people keep messing up, they keep on failing. It's there so that God's people would say, but God's going to send a rescuer. So I just want to, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do something bold here, and I'm going to try to walk through a lot of the Old Testament and just show you how it's pointing to Christ. And this this might stretch you a little bit, but just focus as hard as you can right here. All right, you ready for it? Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose perfect obedience is given to us. Okay, so Adam's in the garden, and God, God says, love me, and if you love me, you'll do what I say, what I command. And Adam doesn't do that. And what happens is the whole world becomes cursed because of that. It's like this curse is now credited to us. Well, Jesus comes and lives perfectly obedient to God, and then he credits all his obedience to us. And so we are covered now with his perfect record. It's just a flip of what's happening. So Jesus is the true and better Adam. All right, now Jesus is the true and better Abel. Do you know the story of Abel? Abel is killed by his brother Cain, and when that happens, what it says is the blood of Abel is crying out from the ground of Cain's guilt. Well, Jesus is the true and better Abel in that when we kill him and his blood is shed, his blood is not crying out our guilt. His blood is crying out for our acquittal, for our forgiveness. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Do you know who Abraham is? Abraham was said, God said to Abraham, go to a far off country, leave your home so you can build a great world and a great people. Well, Jesus leaves his home in heaven with the Father, comes to a far land, a far off country, in order to build a new world and a new people. The true and better Abraham. 
He's the true and better Isaac. You know the story where Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac because this weird story, like what, God, what is God doing where he's calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and just before it's about to happen, God says, no, wait. And then God says to Abraham, now I know you love me because you would not withhold your one and only son from me. It's a weird story and we can talk about that another day, but, but watch this. Jesus is the true and better Isaac because now we know that God would not withhold his one and only son from us. And now we know if he would do that, he would do whatever it takes to get us. Story of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And they think he's gone. They think he's dead. But all of a sudden, one day, he's sitting beside the king. All the power that the king has, and they see him. It's as if he's risen from the dead. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who was sold into slavery by us, by his brothers, by the Jewish people. His people sold into slavery, killed, and then guess what? He's risen from the grave and now he's using his power to change the world. Jesus is the true and better Moses. So Moses is this guy where God's people kept on failing over and over and over again, and Moses is always interceding for them. He's always like, God, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. And God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to do that because I have favor on you. And then Jesus is the true and better Moses who always stands in the gap between us and God and cries out for our forgiveness and offering us grace. Ah, isn't this beautiful? Okay, watch this. Jesus is the true and better David. So the story of David and Goliath. David is battling Goliath. Now, what this is saying is that we are like the scared Israelites standing, terrified of this Goliath. And Jesus, the true and better David, comes and takes down the Goliath of sin and death while we watched as it happened. I could just go on and on and on. Isn't this awesome? The Bible, I want you to know this. One way you got to stop reading the Bible is you got to stop saying the Bible is about me. It's not about you. It's about him and how he is rescuing you. He is the hero. But then the Bible says, you know what, too? You can be heroes, too, by pointing everyone around you to the greater hero. Because all the world can be saved and rescued through him. So we take part in this beautiful story. Okay, so... That means that the gospel isn't for some elite group of people who are good enough to follow this list of rules, for these people who are focused enough, these people who just have it all together. The gospel isn't just for them. The gospel is for everyone, and that's the fourth badge. It's a picture. This is a picture. Uh, this, this fourth badge is a picture of God reaching down his hand to offer grace to all of the world. The gospel is for everyone. Let me show you. So what we see above the head of Christ, as he's crucified on the cross, we see written, he is the king of the Jews, but it's written in three languages. And it's written in three languages so that everybody who walks by could understand who this is. This is the great serpent crusher. This is the promised one who's coming to rescue the world. And it's being offered to everyone in every language of all people who are passing by. Many times people will say Christianity is just so exclusive. Like saying that Jesus is the only way. And I got to tell you, these people that are saying this could not be more wrong. 
it is the most inclusive of every any system, any way of life, Christianity is radically inclusive. It is for everyone and everyone. Anyone and everyone. Now, the Bible does take a very strong stance and say that Jesus is the only way to God. But then it says, but everybody can have him. He is for all, and he's offering grace to absolutely everyone. No one is excluded from him. The message is saying, all you need is to know that you need him. The only thing that you need is need. Grace for all who ask for it. You know, you go for a job, to get a job, and you fill out the resume. And the job is, in a sense, the resume is like measuring your worth, measuring your value to the company, measuring whether or not you will fit in. And then you, you, families will even disown children because they're not meeting up to some requirements. And friendships might be lost because of changing lifestyles or something happening. But here's what I'm saying here. Absolutely everything in life, to some degree, is exclusive. Other religions will force you to adopt their culture or their list of rules in order to fit in. And if you can't miss, meet this list of rules, then you can't have the eternal life that's being promised. But Christianity, it's news. That means it's all been accomplished. It's done. So that means there's nothing left for you to do but just to declare Christ your king. And you're in. It's the most radically inclusive way of life there is. And then here's what happens. When you say he's king, he starts taking over your heart and he starts changing you from the inside out. While other religions will say, here's a list of rules that try to get to the inside from the outside, Christ starts at your heart and works out. And that means, do you know what that means? Anyone can come to him. Anyone. The only thing you need is need. This world, I'm a, this world is a fit-in kind of world. We're constantly making adjustments to our lifestyles in order to fit in. I mean, let's just be honest. Like, Facebook is just like a cry saying, ah, I fit in. Like, love me. Sim Christianity, simply, you're just in through belief. That's it. Done. No matter what you do or don't do, believe, and you are in. The Christian ought to ha not hold one ounce of pride or achievement for what they had, for being a Christian. It was all done by grace. Christ accomplished it all, not us. The gospel is for everyone. Watch this. The gospel is for the prostitute and the man spending his money on the prostitute. The gospel is for the pimp and the politician. The gospel is for the judge and the guilty man that the judge has just sent to prison. The gospel's for the prisoner and the prison guard. The gospel's for the slave and the free. The gospel is for the orphan, and the gospel is for the man who dropped his son off at the fire station to orphan him. The gospel is for the bum and the policeman telling that bum that he can't beg in that area anymore. The gospel is for the king and his lowest-ranking servant. The gospel's for the rich, for the poor. The gospel is for the depressed person and the naturally happy person. The gospel is for the Roman soldier who has just tortured Christ and for the two thieves that are cru crucified next to him. 
The gospel is for the failure who can't seem to get his or her life in order. And the gospel is for the prideful rule follower who has finally discovered that he or she needs grace too. The gospel shows no favoritism. Only grace to all who believe it. The only condition for Christianity is Christ and what you make of him. That's it. That was the fourth badge. The fifth badge is that the gospel is public. So while the gospel is for everyone, is a hand that's reaching down to offer grace to all, the gospel is public, meaning that it is a hand reaching out to the world, offering grace to the world. This is us on the world, reaching our hands out to offer grace to all around us, to offer this news. So the, to Rome, this crucifixion was a public display saying, you better not mess with Rome. But to God, this, like, don't you dare mess with Rome, but to God, this crucifixion is publicly saying, don't you dare miss it. Don't you dare miss how much I love you and what I'm willing to do to come and get you. Jesus hanging on the cross is a visual picture for all of the world to see. Every language, every tribe, every tongue, it's a visual picture for the world to see. News. Not something that's hidden away. The love of the gospel is extremely public. We have a God who is who's being shamed for the world to see and that is the greatest news that we have ever heard because he was shamed, so we will never be shamed again. So the question we need to ask is then, okay, if, if, if the gospel is public, then what is the wisest and most biblical way for us to proclaim this message of Jesus? So in, in the past, in the Greek culture of that day, it was very common for, for a scholar, for a teacher to go and sit on a street corner, stand on a street corner, and just start teaching. And the next thing you know, all of these people were around this teacher, just learning from this teacher. Well, that doesn't happen today. That's why when you see someone with a bullhorn on the corner of the road, why everybody takes off running, because that is weird in our culture. So if you have a bullhorn and you are doing that, put your bullhorn away, okay? Okay. Here's what I think. In, in America, especially in our context here, making your faith public is simply about our relationships. That's different in other areas of the world, and, I, and I'm talking about everyday, ordinary people. The gospel is best made public through our relationships. Now, this is about an authentic faith that we are not hiding from our friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers. I heard, I'll tell you a story about how not to do this. So I heard a story about, uh, there was a guest lecturer at a seminary. Already sounds so boring, but, but it is about to get funny. So this guest lecturer comes to the seminary and he's teaching about evangelism and he, 
he takes five students with him. He says, come on, let's go. I'm going to teach you how to evangelize. So they all, like five students, pile into his car, and he starts driving. And he's on the road driving, and there's another car, or there's a bus coming the opposite way. And so what this guy does, this evangelist, he pulls over right in front of the bus, forces the bus to stop, jumps out of his car, runs onto the bus, and says, who wants to accept Jesus and live? And if you deny him, you will die. Raise your hand if you believe. And the whole bus raises their hand because they're terrified this guy's about to kill him. That is not effective public faith. I'm, I'm convinced in our context here, the best way to make our faith public is simply by being friends with people. And not making people like a project, I'm saying like, and, and Christians have totally messed up with this over and over and over again. The best way is to just simply be friends with people. Share who you are with them. So you become friends with someone, or you're already friends with someone. And at some point, if you're being authentic to who you are, they will find out that you're a Christian. And if you have friends that you would call your great friends, but they don't know, if you're a Christian and they don't know this, then there's a potential that that's not a true, authentic friendship because friendship is about getting at the core of who we are. And do you, do you know who's at the core of the Christian? Christ. So for the Christian, an authentic faith is a faith where people just simply know that you're a Christian. No, not in a weird way. You're just friends with them and they just know. And then maybe from there, you're like, well, I have Christian friends and I have other friends that aren't Christians, and, but I'm just friends with people, so I'm just going to hang out with people. And so maybe your friends that aren't Christians come and hang out with friends that are Christians, and then, and then maybe people start discovering the beauty of this truth. Maybe you invite them to church or Maybe you simply share your faith in a way that is absolutely authentic to who you are, but is also a bit courageous because there is a bit of a stigma about this. And you guys are probably feeling it right now, like, oh, but is, is an authentic friendship is a friendship that says, at the core, who I am, I want to invite you in. And just the last thing I want you to know is that the gospel cannot be stopped. The cosmically glorious king has said, I am coming for you. You better bet it's going to happen. No matter what we do or don't do, by faith we have a God who will not stop loving us. He's bought us with the price of his life. And if he's willing to do that, you better bet that there's no way he's going to lose you. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. And he is not against you, but he is for you. And we got to keep telling ourselves that and keep telling each other that for the rest of our lives because we miss it over and over and over again. And we need constant reminders that he is for us. And the proof of that is the cross. Gospel. It's historical, it's genius, it's fulfillment, and it's for everyone, and it is public. Let's pray. God, we pray that all of these truths, all of these badges would not be stolen away from our hearts to where we forget them, but you would keep them there, echoing in the halls of our hearts over and over and over, that they would move up into our mind and move up into our actions so that we might not just believe, but we might live like we believe it to be true.
and that we would have a deep rest knowing that everything has been accomplished, that we can celebrate now. God, we pray that you teach us how to do that. Teach us to sing this new song that this has already been finished, it's accomplished, it's done, and there's nothing left for us to do, but we simply enjoy what you have done and respond appropriately. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.